Amen. That's such an awesome song. And I love what the song talks about. Do you know what it's talking about when it's saying to come alive? It's talking about revival. Right? It's talking about revival. It's talking about what, what Jesus has promised that he would do. And it's what he wants to do. And it's what he has already begun to do in many lives. This sense of revival. You know, I, I, this isn't, I guess as usual, this isn't what I was going to talk about. But I, I get as excited, I think, as, as you guys to hear what the Lord has to say when I get up here. Because he always has something unexpected, even for me. But one thing he did lay on my heart during that song is this sense of revival. And what, what does that mean? You know, is revival something you just wait for? Revival something you just sit back and, and expect God to just bring into our lives? And, and not just us individually, but what about corporately? What about Ignition Church? What about America? What about the bride as a whole? Do we just wait for him to just bring revival into our hearts? And the answer is no. You look all throughout Israel's history, okay? Look all through Exodus and Judges and all throughout Israel's history. What brought God to their aid? It's when he cried out. When Israel cried out, Lord, we need you. We need you. In fact, after the tribulation, what brings Jesus Christ in his second coming to come down and, and literally take victory on this earth will be when Israel cries out for him. When Israel realizes who he is and says, come, come, we ask you to come. We ask literally for revival. So it's no different right now. It's no different for our lives. It's no different in our church. It's no different in this country. Or in the bride as a whole. We have to cry out for that. If you want revival in your hearts, you can't just wait for it to come. You've got to ask for it. You've got to seek it. It's seeking Jesus with your whole heart. And by the way, you can have revival regardless of anybody else around you. You can have revival regardless of your surroundings. So many times in the Word of God... David is a perfect example. He spent so much of his life running for his life. Right? He ran from Saul, then later he ran from Absalom. He ran for his life so much of his life. He wasn't in a comfortable place. Right? But yet you read throughout the Psalms and he cried out to God. He cried out for that revival in his heart. You know, after David sinned against the Lord, he cried out because he knew he had hurt the very person he loves. His God, his Lord, his Savior. So he cried out for revival, Lord. Change me, change my heart. That's what we need to do this morning. I am convinced that as we, we as a church, as we cry out for revival in our own hearts, and in our corporate setting, he will hear, and he is hearing. You know, we do this call every night, 8.30. We do this call. We've been doing it ever since, ever since the new administration took place. We're doing it for 100 days, and then we're doing something after that. It won't be every, every single night, but we're, we're going to keep going with that. But right now, we do it every night at 8.30. And I'll tell you what, if you've had a chance to be on the calls... And if you haven't, then I encourage you to, because we cry out. We cry out because there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to fix or to replace or to bring forward God's will except just crying out to him. So in your own life, if you want God's will to happen in your own life, it will not happen without crying out. You have to cry out. And then those dead bones, they come alive. See, he agrees with me. <laughs> Zeke agrees, man. He doesn't even know it yet, and he agrees. 
see the dry bones start to take life. And what happens is God raises up a literal army of people that are sold out for him, that are in revival, in the midst of revival. It doesn't stay contained within yourself. It just, man, it just is a transformation. It's kind of like how worship was this morning. You know, we, we kind of started off and, and it felt lethargic, right, at the beginning, you know, for, for different things going on in different people's life, there's so much warfare going on because of what we're on the precipice of. And because of this, you know, it's, it's hard to come in and, woohoo, yeah, God, yay. <laughs> you may feel that on the inside, but you know what? It has to get out. But for it to get out, it's got to be real. And so look what happened. When we began to focus and worship on who he is, and what he did, and singing the very words that bring life. What happened? Man, I, I, I wish we could put online the worship that goes on here. It is, I've been a worship leader for over 15 years, and this is the most powerful worship I've ever been, in, been a part of, been, been able to experience and be in. I can only imagine when we actually get a stage. <laughs> Get actual instruments. And, and by the way, by the way, Ariel did an awesome job this morning. Ariel's debut. Okay, the only thing cooler than a girl bass player is a girl drummer. I'm just saying. That is cool. You did an awesome job this morning. But worship, it came from within. That's where revival comes from. Revival comes from deep within. It's a decision you make that, Jesus, I say yes. I say yes. I give you the roadmap of my life. Do what you want. And then when he actually begins to do what he wants, you let him. (laughs) That's the part we don't talk about a whole lot. It's easy to say, Jesus, do what you want. Do what you want. Oh, whoa, hey, hold on. I didn't really mean that. You know, but man... When you let him do what he wants, that brings revival. And it's infectious. Revival's infectious. When revival starts to break out, it starts to infect everything around it. And that's what's happening here. That's what he promises in this end-time revival. It's extraordinary what's about to happen. Believe me. It's something we've never seen before. John 14, we have not seen yet, where Jesus said, you will do more than I did when I was on this earth. We haven't seen it yet. It didn't happen in Acts. See, it happens because of the sheer volume of people in his bride. Not that we're going to have one person do more than what Jesus did on the earth. That's not what he meant. He meant by the sheer volume of people that allow him to work through them, We're going to see more, more miracles than he ever performed on this earth. And I I don't know, read the Gospels. Because if there wasn't a miracle going on around him, maybe he was asleep. And even then, there were miracles happening all the time. See, you don't see that today. You certainly don't see it on a large scale. But you're going to. Why? Because he promised Not because of anything we know. Not because of anything we can do. He promised it. If you don't believe me, go read John 14. He promised it. And that's how he readies his bride. No, I won't say Revelation 3.9. Even though I just did. But that's how he readies his bride. Revival. So that's something we've been doing on the call the last, I don't know what, four nights or whatever it's been three, four nights, including in praying for this country, praying for this administration, praying for God to literally infiltrate and change that, that mountain of influence. We've been praying, Lord, for revival. Come revive our hearts. Start with me. Revive our hearts. Revive this church. Bring this church to a place where we're an army for you. Not just an army rising up. Because that, that denotes training. 
doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it could seem like it denotes numbers, but to me it denotes training. An army rising up is an army being trained. Okay, I, I think we're a little different than that now. We've been in training ultimately for about three years. Isn't it funny how that's the exact time the disciples were trained? And I know the Lord loves the number three, right? So we're an army rising up, which means that there is going to be influence coming that we can influence. We can, we can literally take that revival that is in us and that is breaking out in us and let it just go. Let it spread. Let it be infectious. It's awesome. It's awesome. All right. I feel like we should pray and then just break. But Actually, let's pray, and then we're going to get into uh, this part of the series. Father, Lord, we worship you. You are almighty God. And Lord, we lay at your feet every ounce of our will to say, do what you want. Lord, I say, I ask that no words coming out of my mouth this morning are from me, but they're all from you. Lord, that I can receive just like everybody else receives, because you're awesome. You're an awesome God. And this series that you have been teaching us, Lord, from the perspective of offense, has been such a new paradigm. And it's awesome. Because you intend for us to take ground, your bride to take ground, because you're working through us. So Lord, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn to Ephesians 6. We're in this, uh, um, this series talking about the armor of God, but a little bit different perspective. So many of, of the, the times that we talk about the armor of God, we, we take it from the perspective of defense. And by the way, that's really important. You get in a sword fight, you're going to want a shield. You're going to want a breastplate. You're going to want a helmet. Okay, if someone starts swinging at you, you want something to defend against their advancement. Okay, but there's a whole nother side. And, and by the way, we did this series two years ago from that perspective, from the, the perspective of defense. But there's a whole nother perspective to consider. And that's what I believe that God is preparing his bride for right now. And that's the perspective of offense. When you go on offense, the armor is even more important at that point. Because if you can picture, um, picture, you know, even, even in the old days with it. By the way, are these just the coolest nights? I love them. <laughs> That's why I found a whole bunch of them and I thought, no, I'm not going to have the same one each week. These are all so cool. I'm going to use a different one each week because they're so cool. So anyway, sorry. That's just a little... Uh, little thing of mine, but, but you, you look, even in that day and age where you have these knights, right, that they're running into a battle, or I like to think one of my favorite movies is Braveheart, okay, anybody not see Braveheart? Not? Okay, we need to sit down. We need to sit down and show you the coolest movie in the world, okay, anyways. Um, you know, with, with Braveheart, what I loved about him was, was that the cause was so much more important than his life. That was way more important to him than his, than his life. And, and, you know, when you're running into battle, you're not just running to the point where you get to the first one and, and okay, let's fight. It's not like that. You watch that movie, you watch that day and age, and what they do is they just charge until they have a penetration into the lines. So literally you have people running past other warriors that they're coming into contact with so they can get a deeper penetration before they stop and fight. If they don't have body armor on, if they don't have armor, a helmet, a, a breastplate, if they don't have these things on, the glancing blows as they run by can be fatal blows. So even in offense, when you are on the attack, when you're going after what the Lord has told you to go after, it's important to have this armor 
that you would normally think of as defensive. Right? And, and by the way, I want to make something else really clear. And, and this, is, this is really important because, um, and I, I, I know I've said this before, but when I say going on offense against the enemy, this is not something that you just choose to do. Okay? This is something you have to be called to do. You don't just decide, okay, well, I know there's spiritual warfare going on over there. Let me just run over there. I have authority. Let me just run over there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight that thing. Okay? What you're going to realize, if you were not called by God to do that very battle, you're going to find out you don't have the authority you thought you did. Because, see, defensive authority is different than offensive authority. When the Lord had me go out to California to, to deal with the principality that was out there, at that, the, the ministry that was out there, if he did not tell me to do that and give me the authority to engage, I would have been in trouble. Because authority is different offensively than defensively. Now, you also have, when you go into a situation that you know you're supposed to be at, if, if you come to church and, and you, you sense or you see that something's going on that, that is, is warfare that shouldn't be there, okay, you're where you're supposed to be. Don't get me wrong. You have the authority to deal with that. Why? Because he doesn't have the authority to be there. The enemy does not have the authority to be in places that has been cleansed, if that makes sense. And I, I don't want to get into a rabbit, rabbit hole in this, but I want you to understand, don't pick a fight with something you're not supposed to pick a fight with. You know, the Bible says to flee, right? Until you're called. If you're called to go after something, you notice what Paul did in, in, uh, uh, in the Word of God where, where that girl followed him for a couple days, screaming, he knows the way of salvation, blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and he, he ignored her for a couple days, and finally he turned around and said, get out. And he wasn't talking to her. He was talking to the demonic spirit that was empowering her. <coughs> See, we don't engage until God tells us to engage. I believe there was a point where God said to Paul, yeah, get him out of there. So when you are called to do something, you, ha you are automatically given the authority to do that. Does that make sense? Okay. If you, and, and then we're going to get into some of the power of that. But, but I, I want that to be really clear. When we're doing this series from the perspective of offense, it's not like, oh, man, now I, I got my sword. I'm just going to go start swinging. No. I want you to think of it like a SEAL team. Okay, and we've used this metaphor. I love war metaphors. I don't know why. I do. You'll see it in our logos. You'll see it in, in the media, everything. And so, so the SEAL team, the metaphor here works perfectly. See, when the military sends out a SEAL team to do a job, they go behind enemy lines to do it. But they don't do anything that they're not supposed to do. Well, while we're in here, why don't we do this, this, and this? See, they don't choose to do that themselves because it could compromise the mission, right? It's no different with us. If the Lord sends you in to witness to somebody or to, to deal with something, do what he tells you to do and no more. Now, you may be in there and he may tell you more. That's different. You know, missions can change on the fly. But don't do anything that he has not told you to do. Because 2 Corinthians 9.8 says that if he told you to do it, he's given you everything you need to do it with. That includes the authority. So I want to make sure that's clear as we get into this. So Ephesians 6. I'm just going to start at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole or entire armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil or his strategies, his plans. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness. And remember, we talked about that. We talked about what that means. Okay, that is talk. I, I, know, I know a lot of people look at that as different levels of satanic authority, but it's really three different realms that he operates in. It's not levels of authority, because there's a whole lot more than three. Just like any military, there's a whole lot more than three uh, uh, levels of power, if you will, on both sides, on fallen angels and good angels. Okay, so what he's talking about here is three areas that he affects, right? And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If you want, want more on that, you can, you can listen to the podcast a couple of weeks ago. But that last one, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, this present darkness is this world. It's this physical world, this three-dimensional place that we understand here. That's the present darkness. Okay? Matthew 25 makes that clear. And then the last place is the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, which, which is the third heaven. And we talked about that before, where that's where the throne of God is. And Satan, Revelation 12.10, he's an accuser that comes before the throne of God day and night. What's he doing there? He is fighting in heavenly places. Okay, so, so that's what those are. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand. When you have fully prepared to stand, stand. Take that step. When he's prepared you to do what you need to do, what you're called to do, you've got to take the step. See, he prepared Moses as Moses took the people, led the people out of Egypt. He, he got up to the Red Sea. Okay, Moses was equipped to do everything that God needed him to do. But you know what? He still had to step. He had to step into the Red Sea before it parted. He didn't know that was going to happen. He didn't know what was going to happen to get the people across. He just knew that here's this sea, here's the Egyptian army, and you promised, Lord. So what did he do? He stepped. We have to get prepared, allow the Lord to prepare us, then we got to step and we got to do it. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, which we talked about last week, and then today, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, breastplates in history have been all different kinds, okay? But the, the most effective kind, which in the Roman army, you basically, the better your armor, the higher your rank. I guess they figure... You've been good enough, we, now we don't want to lose you. you know, because if you were in a lower rank, you, you wore a leather breastplate okay, with nothing on the back. I, I guess they didn't care a whole lot about you at the beginning. But the, the most effective breastplate and the breastplate that we need to put on covers the front and the back. It covers all the way around. When you're called to be a warrior, which we all are, when you're called to be a warrior for Jesus Christ, you've got to understand that the darts of the enemy come from any direction. In fact, he knows how to surprise us, doesn't he? He knows our buttons. He knows how to surprise us. You know, last night, Yvonne's playing all day, having fun, no problems, everything's good. Comes in last night, I don't feel so good. Boom! And it hit, right? Okay, that came out of left field. And for us, you know, Alexis, she, she teaches her class in the morning. She, she comes up here and she does the, the, the uh, basically the final or conclusion of what I do up here and was completely derailed, right? See, sometimes the enemy hits us from behind where we don't expect it. So we have to have that breastplate of righteousness that covers us all the way around. So what is righteousness? What is this breastplate that we're talking about? 
We take on, you know, there, there's two types, by the way, I want to get into. Okay, one was, was defensive in, in nature, and I'll just list what that was. When you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you were covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. You became pure and sinless to the Father. Right? When he looks at you, he cannot look at sin. He can look at us because he looks at us through the filter of his son. Because his son died for us. His son covered us in his blood, right? That's what we mean when we say we take on Christ's righteousness. We take on his righteousness. So the Father sees us as perfect. However, you cannot just do that, live a life that you want to, and then expect to be useful in his army. See, because there is a a righteousness that comes through sanctification. We're going to get into that here a little bit. But first, I want you to turn to John, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to uh, read verse 24 and 25. So understanding what righteousness and the, the, the foundation of righteousness is, is important in knowing how to pursue and go, go beyond that. Verse 24 of Deuteronomy 6 says this, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. Now, remember what was listed before. It's all the commandments, and, and not just the Ten Commandments, but, but all the things that Israel had to do to perform correctly in the law. All the sacrifices, everything, that, all the things in the, in the book of Leviticus and through Numbers and all, all these things that they had to do. Okay, so again, verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. So see, to Israel, back in the Old Testament, righteousness was what? It was obedience to the law. Righteousness came as you obeyed the law, as you listened to and obeyed the statutes that God had put down. To be obedient in, right? But see, the problem was no one could do that. So back then, in order to be safe, in order to be effective in warfare, you had to continuously be obedient to the law. Not much different than it is today in terms of offense, right? The difference is back then... Being obedient to the law brought this righteousness. Now, for salvation, we are covered by his grace. Right? The law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He came and lived a sinless, perfect life and offered his life on the cross. So he became our, our righteousness for salvation, for our justification. He justified our sin because of his righteousness. However, that doesn't mean that we're not to obey what he says. See, we, we wonder why things happen in our lives. We, we get saved, and we wonder why things happen in our lives that could be different. And I'm not talking about things that, that are you know, extraordinary and stuff like that, but, but even relationships or, or things that happen in our lives that, that seemingly we can't do anything about. And that happens a lot. It happens to all of us. But see, when we have in our lives, when we have the thought process of following him in obedience, then it gives us something to fight with. It literally places, takes it from our shoulders and puts it on his. You know, he said, he said take my burden and I will take your burden. Okay, there, there is a different burden once saved. That burden is what we place on him. He, he took the burden of our salvation, 
Okay, but that's, that's one and done. Once he did that, once we accept him, it's over. There's nothing we can do. We can't even give back our salvation if we wanted to. But our life doesn't end there. That's when you go into this process of sanctification that we've talked about so much. So righteousness, even in the Old Testament, is simply perfectly doing what is right. Does that make sense? That's how it was in the Old Testament, but I'm, I'm going to say to you that's no different in the New Testament. See, because of grace, it doesn't give us a license to do what we want. It, give, it, it does in terms of you having salvation and being saved and going to heaven. It certainly does. You could do anything after salvation, and you will not lose your salvation. However, you cannot expect this revival. You cannot expect God to work in your life or to do something in your life or to bring your book that he has written for you, his will for your life, to fruition if you're not giving up your will. If you're not seeking him in that sanctification, seeking him in personal relationship, being obedient to what he says. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 talks about where Jesus took on our righteousness, right? Chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, I want you to understand what this is saying here. Okay, it leads, there's a key word in there. When you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, you do not become ultimately righteous and pure in your walk with him. Do you see what I'm saying? If I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and I go on sinning, okay, uh, let, let's, say, let's say I have a gambling problem, okay, and, and, and I, I get saved and I go on gambling, well, no, I'm, I'm saved, I'm covered in his right, I am righteous before the Father. Ten more down on that, you know. Okay, it doesn't take that act and auto- automatically make that act righteous. And, and by the way, that is the hyper-grace message. And, and that's wrong, that's incorrect. Because grace, Jesus Christ covering us in righteousness, applies to justification. It does not apply to sanctification without our engagement. Does that make sense? If you don't believe me, let's read this verse again. Verse 14, or 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to what? Justification for all men. Doesn't say sanctification. You are not automatically given a close, tight relationship with Jesus Christ when you accept him into your heart. You are not automatically given revival in your heart when you accept him in your heart. Why? Because you have to be trained. I mean, look at Paul. Paul Paul's such an amazing uh, person to me in this, and so much of it we, we don't understand that he went through. Because here's a guy who is probably one of the most zealous people in the world. Certainly at that time, I, I would dare say in, in the Word of God. This incredibly zealous person, what he was doing in persecuting Christians was because he felt it was right. It wasn't some power trip. It was because he felt he was defending the true God. See, that's why when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, he did not come down hard on him. He said, dude, do you realize what you're doing? What you're fighting for, you're actually fighting against. So what happened? Paul had this amazing conversion, right? 
on Damascus Road. He goes back and 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 right away he he he's this zealous guy and he just goes off into his missionary journeys. No, it's not what he did. The zealot did not change. His heart probably was even greater filled with an urgency to share Jesus. But what happened? He was basically sidelined for 14 years. And then another three years before his first missionary journey. He was side- Why was he sidelined? Because he had to be prepared. He had to be trained. We get little glimpses of what happened in his training, but really very little. The only way we can really identify what happened in his training is when we see his life. Here was a guy who was told, he was told right after Damascus Road what he's going to deal with. And I believe that's what God did over the the next 14 years. He said, by the way, you're going to be shipwrecked three times. You're going to be stoned. And not the way we think of it today. Right? You're going to have all of these problems. You're going to have people try and kill you. You're going to have people hate you. All this is going to happen to you. But my grace is sufficient. Do you think Paul lost his zealousy? Is that a word? Do you think he lost that passion? Well, not the one I read. The one I read is the most passionate person that I think I know of in the Word of God. But he had to be prepared. How did he get prepared? Excuse me, how did he get prepared? By allowing Jesus Christ to work in his life. By developing this intimate walk of purity with his Savior. See, so righteousness is not just something we're given upon salvation. Righteousness is also something that we develop in relationship. That part of righteousness is our choice. You you wonder why Jesus, you know, in, in the Word of God, it says that when you ask forgiveness, I take that and I don't remember it anymore. I throw it into the deepest sea of, of forgetfulness. But yet, we're reminded of it all the time. Why? Is that like operating outside of God? What, what's going on with that? See, that's, that's not what's happening. You have the lens through which the Father sees you, and then you have how Jesus Christ sees you. See, Jesus is the filter. But for us to maintain a relationship with him... That relationship is based upon purity. You cannot have known sin that you continuously do in your life and then expect to be close with Jesus Christ. Okay, and it doesn't mean that, that well, I, I don't get close to him until I've taken care of everything in my life. Okay, it's, it's not like that either. It's a process of drawing close to him because he has to change our paradigms. He has to teach us in new ways who he is and what he did in our lives. Turn to John chapter 15. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Word of God, and I know I say that about a bunch of them, but this one is too. Okay, but this is talking, you know, Jesus is teaching his disciples here. And, and you know, they already believe that he is the Messiah. So we're going to pick it up at, at verse 3 and read just verse 3 and 4. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, because of the gospel that Jesus had spoken to, him, to them, saying that I am going to die and rise again. And, and the gospel that he taught him. But what's he say in verse 4? He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And I want to encourage you. We're going to stop there. But, but man, when you get home tonight or whatever, just go through John chapter 15. It talks about 
the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It talks about that sanctification part of, of our salvation. You have justification, sanctification, glorification. The sanctification is what happens between our accepting Jesus Christ as Savior until we breathe our last breath on this earth. And it's what we do in relationship with him. It isn't what we do in works. Okay, it isn't, well, you know, I, I started this church and, you know, I, I do this and I do that and I give my, my tithe and, and I witness for you and I'll go on a prayer walk or I take people to create. It's not all these things that you do. Okay, those are an after effect, after effect of who you are. Because what the purity is and what the righteousness is, is what you do in relationship with him. What you do in the secret place is who you are with him. What you do in the secret place, your worship, your Bible reading, your prayer, what you do when it's just you and him, that's your relationship. That's the righteousness. That's the sanctification. The works are simply because you're plugged into the branch or into the vine. He produces those works, not you, because he produces them through you. See, if you choose to produce the works yourself, those works are not counted unto righteousness. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? So it's important to understand that our relationship with him is what grows with our righteousness that he allows, or that we allow to bring into our lives, and that's that's done through through purity. So we strengthen our breastplate through this process. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter three, and remember now we're talking about this this piece of armor that we put on, and what what is this piece of armor really for? It covers our heart. It covers our main organs. You know, if you're, if you're in battle and, and you, you get wounded in the arm or wounded in the leg, it's not going to be fatal immediately. Okay? You get wounded in the heart, it's going to be fatal quickly. So this breastplate, it covers the vital organs of our body from, from a warrior standpoint. But from God's standpoint, what's it cover? It covers our heart. It covers the, the literal intimacy that we are through the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ. That intimate place, that secret place, this breastplate of righteousness. If we don't put on a breastplate of righteousness, which is obedience to God, then we are not covering our heart. We're not laying precious that relationship with Jesus Christ. And we, we make our, ourselves really vulnerable, vulnerable to the enemy. When you run into battle or you're being attacked by the enemy and you don't have your heart covered, what's he going to go after? He's going to go after a kill blow. He's going to go after what destroys you. Why? Because he's the destroyer. That's what he does. Now, if you are wrapped in this breastplate of righteousness in your relationship with Jesus Christ, this righteous relationship, then he can't go after that kill blow. Doesn't mean he doesn't come after you. He does. That's his nature. That's what he does. That's why we're given this armor. That's why we're given a call to, to go on offense. But he cannot penetrate that breastplate of righteousness when your walk is close with the Lord. Galatians 3.11. Is that what I said? Did I tell you to turn there yet? Okay, turn to Galatians 3.11. Sorry. Um, okay. This is what happens when I shake. Okay, Galatians 3.11 says this. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall what? Live by faith. 
So he gives you your first clue in what it means to be righteous. There's going to be an ingredient that is present that if it's not present, it is not righteousness from God. And that is faith. Faith. Man, I'll tell you what. There, are not, there is not a harder test than a test of faith. And, and, and I, I really have come to believe that every test that we're given, every you know, ounce of warfare that we're given is all about that faith. And it certainly makes sense because, that, see, that's the one thing that we do have to have for salvation. That's the one thing that is on our part for accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. What? You have to believe who he is. You have to believe he was son of God, came down as man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, sits at the right hand of the Father. That, that's pretty simple, but you have to believe it. You have to accept it by faith. But see, that's not a huge step of faith. God made it, made it so easy. He made it so easy to accept him. But whoa, it's not that easy to follow him. It's not that easy to build relationship with him. It's certainly not that easy when you're called to be a warrior and you step out to be a warrior. See, because God operates on a specific currency. If we don't become wealthy in that currency, we're not going to get anywhere. That currency is faith. He operates on the currency of faith. He said in in Hebrews 11.6, Faith is what pleases him. So if you want to please him in relationship and you're not doing it with faith, you've got a problem. You're not going to please him. So we wonder why we keep going through these these things that build our faith. You know, in reality, we look at those as difficult things and God, why do you keep doing this? And, you know, what's going on? In reality, he is literally giving you more to operate in his system. He said, said, just the faith of a mustard seed, just a little grain of mustard seed, and you could move mountains. By the way, you know what that literally means? Now, you you can see that as a literal thing, like a mountain move mountain, but what what it's talking about there is shifting, shifting atmospheres of government. Okay, shifting atmospheres of government, of these things that have this huge influence in the world. See, it requires faith to go in and do that. It required faith for us to pray for what God told us to pray for in this last election. He told us, he told us a year and a half before it happened, pray for Donald Trump. He is my chosen person. It wasn't too popular to talk about that back then. Honestly, it still isn't. But that's okay. That's okay because it took faith to move a governmental mountain. What do you see happening? It's moving. And it's because a remnant of his bride took that currency of faith and said, I'm cashing this in to move this mountain, to change this government. See, we have to pray for that, for the bride. We have to pray for that, for the church, because the church is so scattered. Even those who know him as Savior are so diverse. You find them at completely opposite scales, where there's zero unity within the bride. So we have to, as the remnant, we have to start praying for God to move this mountain. Because it's the next mountain that has to move. This mountain of of his bride, of the church, that has to move. That has has to start to see with God's eyes what he's doing, what's going on. So we do that with the currency of faith. Another verse on this, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 says this. 
And this is the righteous shall live by faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So it takes faith to reveal something that's being done in faith. You ever wonder why so many people do not see what you see? Perhaps, and and again, using the example of the government. There are so many Christians, so many people that do not see the hand of God in what's going on in our government. You wonder why. Why, why Why can't they see what's going on? Your answer is right here. Right here in verse 17 it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It takes faith to see what God is doing. If you want to be included in his plan, if you want him to use your life, you had better build the currency of faith. He cannot do it any other way. You know, we we pray for, for giftings to come upon us, right? Giftings that he promised us. Giftings that he gave us upon salvation, but then he manifests in his timing, right? Those will not happen without faith. It costs something for him to do that in your life. That currency is faith. That's why Paul said, seek the higher gifts. That that word there in the Greek for seek is really go after. Go after with vigor. Go after hard. And by the way, he's not talking about seek the higher gifts of those nine. He's talking about the nine are the higher gifts. These manifestational gifts that are for the bride. And not for us individually. Except, Paul says, tongues, when it's, when it's used in your personal time. That's, that's for you. But all the others are for the bride. See, we have to have faith for him to activate those in us. Why? For use for the bride. To engage with the bride. We have a very important piece to bring to the puzzle. If you don't bring it to the puzzle, God will use somebody else to bring it to the puzzle. You do that by faith. Faith is the currency in which we move and we operate. And then Romans 9, turn to Romans 9. And in Romans 9, verse 30... To 32 says this. What shall we say then? And, and Paul, Paul's, you know, talking about the shift from the law to, to grace and, and faith. Verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law, that law. Why? Because they did not pursue by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So you want a relationship with Jesus Christ? You want to draw to him in power? You, you want him to work in your life? You want him to take these things that are difficult. You want him to provide. You want that intimacy with him. It's going to cost you. It costs you faith. It costs you believing. And and by the way, faith is a great thing to think of. Uh, Lord, I want faith. I want to be a man of faith. It's awesome. Until we're tested in it. Well, Lord, do I need that much faith? You know, I, I think I'm pretty good the way I am. You know, let me just handle this one here because, because you're a little slow on it. And I, and I know I can, I, I can just take care of this. See, that doesn't build your faith. When God told us to get rid of the business and sell all the equipment, first of all, he knew me. <laughs> he knew me. If I closed the business and kept the, kept the equipment, I'd be too tempted to take a job here and there. Because I could, I, could, I could do that and I could maintain it. I could make money that I needed to make. But see, there was no cost in that. 
The cost came when he said, no, I want you to get rid of it all because I want you to have faith. I need to build this currency in you that is going to need to be spent. See, that currency is not just for us to hold on to. He builds faith in us to pour faith out. You ever notice that when, when you are pouring faith out, it builds the faith of others? See, it's kind of an infectious thing, right? That, that's why I, lo- I love the, the old adage from a, uh, I can't remember if this was, maybe it wasn't even true, I don't know. But, but when, when I, I thought it was the, uh, uh, when the pilgrims first came, he, he said, burn the ships. Am I remembering that correctly? Mm-hmm. And, and they burned the ships for fuel and all that, but there was a secondary reason. It's kind of like you're stuck now. You better make it work. You better have faith that that you can prevail through this. You ever put yourself in a situation where you have no choice but to live by faith? I heard that, not on purpose. Do you know that we're supposed to? That's exactly what God told me to do in getting rid of the business. See, you have to choose to learn. God's ne- he is never going to force down your throat faith. He's not going to do it. What he's going to say is, look, here's what you get if you pursue me. You get this relationship. You get these promises that are outrageous. 2 Corinthians 9.8, I love it. That's one of my favorite verses in the world. I use it all the time. But my God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. See, that's that's a promise that's complete. He said, if I tell you to do something, I'll give you everything to do it. And it's going to cost you one thing. Faith. You've got to believe what he says. You've got to believe what he says. See, we have a building that's been promised to us that we know is ours, but we're not physically in it. See, there's a cost to that. There's a cost to getting that building, and that cost is God's currency, not the $10 million that it will cost to get into it, because he'll just kill some cattle to do that for us. The real cost is the faith. The faith in believing what he said. The faith in saying, you have said this, I trust you, I believe you. And bottom line, it doesn't matter. I really don't care. And and you have to understand, this is my true, how I feel about it. I really don't care if we're in a building or or if we're in in a tent. I I really don't care. Right. Because it doesn't matter to me. That's not what I stand before the Lord with at the beaming seat of Christ. I stand before him, and he looks at my relationship with him. He looks at the fruits that were produced through me. Were those fruits produced by him, or were they produced by me? If they're produced by him, they're gold, silver, precious stones. If they're produced by me, they're wood, hay, stubble, and they burn up in the fire. So that's what he really looks at. So I, I, it's not my job to try and make this thing work with the building. It's not my job to make this thing work with revival in Ignition Church. It is my job to believe. It is my job to take what he has said that he wants to do in my life, in your lives, and say, yes, Father, I give you the currency of faith. Oh, man. What he will do and what he is doing and what he's going to do as we apply that concept, that currency, it's going to change the world. It's going to change. Do you believe that? Do you believe that a group of people sitting in a living room can change the world? I mean, we kind of have it easy because, see, we saw it happen once before. We saw it happen beginning with Pentecost. 
where those 120 people at Pentecost literally changed the world. So we, we don't even have to have the full faith that they did. They just lost their Savior. <laughs> right? And, then, and I don't mean lost in death. They just lost him because he went up to heaven. It's like, wait, you got to leave? Can't you hang out with us still? He said, don't worry. He said, he said you got to understand, when I go, you will receive more power than you can imagine. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is released. And Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father saying, yes, let me tell you about them. Let me tell you about this group of people sitting in a living room. They just believe. Oh, Lord, they are paying out so much currency of faith. Just, just pour your favor out, Father. Do their book. Do it, Lord, because they, they, they're paying for it. They're paying for it in faith. You watch what he does. You watch what he does. And it's not just this living room. It's all over the world. It's all the people online watching right now. Just give him the currency of faith. Watch what he does in your life. Watch what he does in your relationship with him. He will blow you away. He will absolutely blow you away. Because that's what produces that breastplate of righteousness. That's what produces the protection, protecting your heart, which is what's tied with him. That requires the most protection, especially going on offense, which is what he calls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship.